Lord today to the passage that already we've read from the book of Luke and the chapter 1. The book of Luke and the first chapter, and we're reading some of the words of Zacharias, Zechariah here, who in verse 68 and 69 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. With God's Word open before us, we'll bow together in a word of prayer, please. Our gracious Father, again we approach Thy throne of mercy. As the hymn writer said, let me at Thy throne of mercy find a sweet relief. Heal my wounded, broken spirit. Save us by Thy grace. So we come, and in humility we call upon Thy name today. We pray where there is not that humility or not that humility in a sufficient degree that I will give it, and that I will touch hearts and exercise minds and reach into lives. Lord, we thank Thee for the message that we have here from Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and we praise Thee for all of the terms that he goes into in the description of the Messiah that was to come. Lord, we pray that at this time of year, that the Messiah will come to many hearts. There are many broken homes all around us. There are many shattered lives. There are many people. And at this moment in time, their lives are such a terrible mess. They need not just reconstruction. They need regeneration. And so we pray that Thy Spirit will come and minister to the need that is there. We ask for all of those who at this Christmas time will be feeling loneliness, will be feeling abandonment. Lord, we pray that Thou will be near to them. We know that everybody can't, despite maybe sometimes the flippant way in which we say it, and the good way that it's intended, of course, but we will be wishing one another a merry and a happy Christmas. And yet, for all we know, there are people carrying such burdens that this time of year will be anything but happy, will rather accentuate their pain. And so we pray for all such that thou will come near to them, and out of thine infinite riches in Jesus that thou wilt give and give and give again answer prayer, and help us indeed to have a happy Christmas and a time where we can enjoy the message of Thy gospel record that Christ Jesus came into the world, that faithful saying indeed, to save sinners. Do that, we pray. Touch our hearts and our minds today in our Savior's blessed and holy name, we pray. Amen. 
first words are always memorable. I know they're going to be keenly anticipated, and maybe mom and dad, they're going to be wondering exactly what that little baby will first say. And those words will never be obliterated from their memories. Maybe there's a little bit of rivalry going on. Maybe mom and dad are thinking, well, hopefully it'll be mama, hopefully it'll be dadam, or something along those lines that we will identify that they're addressing us. The words that we've turned to today in Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 68, going through to the end of the chapter, are words spoken by Zacharias, not quite the first words that he ever spoke in his life because he had spoken many words before this, but we come at a stage here where the power of speech had only just returned to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and when we look at what he says, what a message he delivered on this occasion. He's inspired by God the Holy Ghost, without a doubt, and he speaks in verse 68 through to 75 about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who was already on the way. He spoke as well about his own son who had just been born, that is John, John the Baptist, and he knew that he was going to be that trailblazer who would go out and prepare the path for the Messiah that was coming. So we have quite a topic in front of us here today. And what we find as we look down to the verse 68 and the verse 69 in particular, we have a tremendous title that Zacharias confers upon our Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 68 of Luke chapter 1, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So this unique title on horn of salvation is what we're going to look at this morning. Some suggestions that come from the use of this particular title. For instance, we have, first of all, this horn of salvation suggesting to our minds splendor. It suggests splendor. When you get on track of the thought of a horn and you trace it through the Bible, you see when a reference occurs and another one, you will find here that in the Bible a horn is a symbol of splendor and of glory, and of dignity. Back in Lamentations chapter 2, and it doesn't seem to me an awful long time since we were going through in our studies in the book of Lamentations, but in the second chapter, the verse 1 through to the verse 3, we read these words, "'How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger?' and cast down from heaven onto the earth the beauty of Israel. The Lord hath swallowed up, he hath thrown down, he hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. And it's very evident from the terms that are used here that to have the horn cut off in your kingdom would have been a terrible, lamentable thing. That was exactly what you didn't want. That was precisely what that nation could not afford. It was such indignity to have the horn of the nation cut off in God's fierce anger. So it's a symbol of splendor and glory and dignity. 
And we find another reference in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 3 to 4, and again, how the glory of Israel had been smashed into pieces, its horn had been broken in the day of God's anger. And so the horn is a suitable title of Jesus Christ. If it points to glory, if it points to dignity, if it points to splendor, then there is no more glorious or dignified or splendid person than Him. And it applies to His work as well, which is glorious and is splendid and is so dignified, His wonderful salvation. His salvation is glorious, a number of reasons why, because of the magnitude of the eternal purpose. What do we mean by that? Well, there was a wonderful conference convened way back in eternity past, and we have God the Father at the conference, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit there as well, and it's a conference when the eternal Son of the highest, He who was the daily delight of the Father, He who was the light and the glory of heaven, He who was, as we sing in our carol, the everlasting Lord, He who was clothed in those robes of magnificent splendor, He volunteered in this conference that I will descend to earth in order to die for sinful men. And so when we would check in, for example, into Psalm 40, and we find Him saying, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, I come to do Thy will, O my God, yea, Thy law is within my heart. We see the voluntariness that is in our Savior's mind, how He is jumping at the bit to get moving towards earth, even knowing that will be for humiliation. The splendor will be left aside. But in that conference, the plan of salvation was drafted, drawn up to every detail, signed and sealed, and would in time be delivered. Whatever hymn writers, he shouts out in eager anticipation, Bless, bless the conqueror slain, slain by divine decree, who lived, who died, who lives again, for thee, his saint, for thee. His salvation, it's glorious because of the magnitude of that eternal purpose that lay behind it. His salvation can also be seen as glorious because of the marvelousness of the essential preparation, the marvelousness of the essential preparation that went into it. What can you and I say about Christ's descent to earth? Through that vehicle of the virgin birth that staggers our imagination, that mystifies us as He steps forward into this world in order to fulfill this eternal covenant. Now, when we see Him, Isaiah says He'll come like this, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. In other words, the splendor, the dignity, the glory of His person, that'll be doomed and that'll be disguised. There'll be a veiling and a hiding of the glory on that occasion. Again, at this time of year, we tend to sing Charles Wesley's words, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold Him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, 
the Godhead seen, healed the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And those who knew him will recognize him, but have to cut through the veil and have to work through the covering and to get to the glory, have to see through the shame with which he voluntarily covered himself. Paul speaks of this condescension, this covering, this concealing. In Philippians 2, the verse 6 through 8, and those terms that he uses almost catapult us back to Lamentations 2 that we have quoted already, when the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud, cast down from heaven onto the earth the beauty of Israel, and he did that all in preparation for cutting off in his fierce anger the horn of Israel. And so Paul's words, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. One of the great Puritan preachers, John Flavel, put it like this, for the sun to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom, for an angel to be turned out from heaven, be converted into a fly or a worm, had not been such abasement. For they were but creatures before, and so they would abide still, though in an inferior rank. But for the infinite, glorious, creator of all things, to become a creature is a mystery extending all human understanding. What a tremendous stoop that was. There was the hiding of His glory here. And though we are afforded a glimpse here and a glimpse there and somewhere else of Christ's glory through His miracles at the time of His transfiguration and even at that scene of the most intense shame at His cross, there are glimpses of the glory coming through. Still, this splendor was largely shielded from human eyes. A glorious horn of salvation because of the magnitude of the eternal purpose, because of the marvelousness of the essential preparation, and also because of the magnificence of the extensive pardon. It's a horn of salvation. And our Lord Jesus Christ has purchased a most wonderful salvation for His people. I turn to Hebrews 7, verse 25, and I find that it is salvation to the uttermost. And various scholars have tried to dig into the terminology here that we find in the original Greek, this word, uttermost. And they're going forward and they're trying to go deeper and as deep as they possibly can. And they're trying to plumb what they find to be immeasurable depths in the Word. Some have said, well, you could render it completely. He saves completely. 
others most perfectly is the way in which he sees. Others see in it eternally. And you know what? They're all true. This is all true of his great salvation. It is complete. It is most perfect. It is eternal. And I trust you have it. That you're in possession of it today. Because this salvation, it's able to save the whole man. It's able to save from all evil to all good. And it's able to save to all eternity. And I know these are words. And we only can use words by which to communicate. But if we could get into the depths of what this means. What a salvation. And what a wonderful Jesus to be that horn of salvation for us. So that suggests, first of all, splendor. Another suggestion coming from this title and horn of salvation is that of strength. Strength. When God promised that He would give power to His people, that they would go out and subdue the enemies that had come up against them, he used on occasions the figure of a horn. For example, back in the book of Micah, the chapter 4, the verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people. But when he looked and trained his sights on one of the enemies of Israel, the nation of Moab, And he said, I'm going to weaken the power of Moab. Again, he goes to this figure of a horn, talking about their strength or their power in Jeremiah 48, the verse 25, the horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken. So clearly, again, in the Bible, this horn stands for a symbol of power. We have it again. We'll not look up the references, but in Psalm 75, verse 4, 5, and 10, in Lamentations 2 and 17, in Daniel 7, verse 8, and again, verse 21, again, we have the thought of this horn speaking of power. And so here's Zacharias, and he's begun to talk again, and he's exalting Christ and building up the Messiah who is going to come, and he speaks of the power that he will have. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Luke 1 and verse 68. For he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he's talking here enthusiastically about power that is going to come. Think of the power Christ displayed in saving souls from sin, the power that he still displays. Think of the malignancy that he conquered, revealing his power as the one who was the horn of salvation because he triumphed over sin. He saves from the guilt of sin. I find you guilty is the dreaded verdict in any earthly court of law. 
But it's exactly this verdict that the highest court in the universe, the court of heaven, delivers on every sin committed by every sinner on earth. Guilty, guilty, guilty. How many times that announcement must be made about us in that eternal courtroom and how many insertions of this condemning and damning word should be placed against my name and your name in the records of God. Terrible, hideous, damnable, how guilty we are. I'm going to that old Puritan preacher, John Flavel, again. He said, how deep is the pollution of sin that nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse it? He goes on to say, all the tears of a penitent sinner, should he shed as many as there have fallen drops of rain since the creation, cannot wash away one sin. The everlasting burnings in hell cannot purify the flaming conscience from the least sin. Yet what has happened? Jesus has come. And as this horn of salvation, He has taken our guilt, all of those who believe on His name, who have turned from their iniquities, He has taken our guilt upon His guiltless person, and He has poured out His blood in rich red rivers to cover it and to cleanse it all away. In Titus 2 and verse 14 we read, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, that verse that the old Protestant reformers clustered around and they saw in it the great exchange the whole summary of how a soul is saved by Christ. There we read, For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Sometimes as we come to the communion table, we might sing the hymn that contains the lines, Mine is the sin, but thine the righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. Here is my robe, my refuge, my peace, thy blood, thy righteousness. O Lord, my God, he saves us, the horn of salvation, from the guilt of sin. And also from the grip of sin. You try and witness to someone in Belfast about their need of Christ. Tell them they're a slave to sin. And they'll start looking at you as if you've got two heads. Slave? I can do as I please. I'm my own boss. I'm in thraldom and dominated by the tyranny of no one. I'll do it my way. But man, despite all of his boasts, is the biggest slave who ever has lived in God's universe. Romans 6 and verse 16 more than establishes the fact, Know ye not? 
that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants or slaves ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. And so in chains, clanking chains of corruption, fettered by his own foulness, that's the position of every sinner. But Christ comes and He abolishes and He shatters the dominion of sin in the life of that repentant child by the power of His Holy Spirit, by imparting the divine nature to them, by causing them to become, rather than servants to sin and slaves to iniquity, the servants of righteousness. And it's a blessed transfer of allegiance, change of master. And so, Paul writes on in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I think of what Augustus Toplady said, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Salvation from the guilt and the grip of sin. And he saves us from the gall of sin as well. Sin has a bitter end can't be any more bitter than find yourself in the relentless, endless torments of hell. Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ, having trodden the winepress of the wrath of His Father alone on Calvary as He did, having suffered the entirety of the sinner's punishment for Him there, He has emerged as a horn of salvation to all of those who will renounce their iniquities and believe upon Him. death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, it was full for thee. And thou hast drained the last dark drop. It is empty. Now for me, that bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings draft for me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was its ward. It breathed the storm for me. Thy form was marred. Thy visage scarred. Now cloudless peace for me. As Isaiah puts it in those wonderful words, the first verse in his twelfth chapter, Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. He's happy. Paul's no less happy, because in Romans 8 and 1 he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And they're both saying, Isaiah, Paul, everybody else who knows the Lord, what a horn of salvation Jesus is. He saves from sin. He saves from Satan too, from the tyranny of the devil. I remember going to a prayer meeting away back 
more years than I care to remember. And it was in the home of the Andersons in Lisburn, and all the brothers owned chip shops, and because of that and the time that they were running them to, they were missing the church prayer meeting each week, but they had their own, and I was invited to it, and many nights I went along, started at 11, ended probably about 3. But I remember one of them, and he kept repeating this verse, because he was witnessing to all and sundry, and here was his go-to text in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 26, and he was saying, you know, as a poor sinner, you think, as we just mentioned, you are as free as a bird, but you are held captive at the devil's will. Philip Henry, the father of the famous commentator Matthew, declared, he is the jailer in whose custody all unregenerate people are. They are his prisoners, his captives, his galley slaves now, and must be with him forever. And can the blessed Jesus deal with him? Is he hard enough for him? He is, certainly. He has broken his head, Genesis 3 and 17. He has led captivity captive, Psalm 68 and 20. He has made a show of him openly, Colossians chapter 2. He has vanquished and destroyed him. And we are so thankful for that, that Jesus Christ has beaten the devil out of sight. He did it when he came and tried to tempt him in the wilderness. He entered into fresh and forceful duel with him on Calvary's cross, and he won a resounding victory over him. And whenever a crag was up out of a broken soul, snared by the power of the devil, and it reaches God's ears, he responds, rescues that soul from the tyrannical grip of the devil, and imposes the power of his triumph achieved on Calvary upon that devil once more. He may be the roaring lion, the devil himself, that goes about looking for prey, spotting targets, seeking whom he may devour, is the Bible words. But Christ Jesus is the lion of Judah, and he can break every chain ever to be forged on the anvil of hell. Jesus, the prisoner's fetters, breaks and bruises Satan's head. Power! Into strengthless souls he speaks, and life unto the dead. And so at conversion, our Lord Jesus cuts the cords, smashes the chains by which the devil holds souls fast in bondage over the tyranny of Satan. Salvation from the temptations of Satan. You could hardly believe the devil would have the audacity to try and come and tempt Christ, the head. But Matthew 4 clearly shows that he had that audacity. And if he assaulted him, do you think he's not going to assail and assault you? Of course he will. And he does, in fact. The more visible Christ's image will be in any person, the more violently the devil will make that person his target. And surely Ephesians 6, verse 11 and 12 addresses that theme because Paul is 
telling us you need to be diligent here, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's coming from every angle, and it's coming right from the top as far as this world is concerned. And they stand against the child of God to impede him, resist him, to tempt him at every turn in his service for Christ. But our Lord Jesus puts himself between his blood-bought children and the teeth of the roaring lion and his ruinous demons, and he thwarts the devil's purpose, and he shreds up his wicked plans, and we shout hallelujah for that. I think of that classic confrontation that the doughty German reformer Martin Luther had with the devil. The man of God's in a study, the old tempter's appearing, and he's dragging, this is the picture that he gets, a lengthy scroll of Luther's sins along with him, and he throws him down in front of the reformer, and he smiles with glee, and Luther just turns and asks him, bring the full record of my sin along, because that's incomplete. Bring the full record, and the devil obliged, and the Lord's servant declared triumphantly, you have forgotten one thing, it is written. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth me from all that sin. Salvation from the tyranny of Satan, the temptations of Satan, from the tirades of Satan. Don't we find a title, a description for the devil in Revelation 12 and 10 that rather chills us? He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he's very persistent at the task. Day and night, he's not tiring to bring accusations against the saints of the Lord. That's a fact, a sad fact, that in the very best of God's saints, we have weakness. We have imperfections. And the devil knows what they are, and he fastens them, and he lifts them up, and he scurries off with them, and he accuses us, not only before the eyes of man, but before God himself. Ralph Robinson said, he that turns every stone to hurry us into sin, does when he has overcome us, represent all to God against us, in the ugliest shape he can, that he might hinder mercy from us. Yes, he is so malicious that when he can have nothing visibly to lay to our charge, he will pretend something, as we see in the case of Job. But his accusations are silenced by Christ. For as soon as the devil files that accusation, Christ lifts up his wounded hands, shows his wounded feet, and he pleads the merit of his sacrifice before the throne of God for the release of his child, and the devil's insinuations and accusations are extinguished. What though the accuser roar of ills that I have done? I know them all, thousands more, but Jehovah Due to the price paid for me on Calvary, 
For my past, my present, my future sins, and due to the constant presentation of that paid price before the face of his Father, Jehovah findeth none. Now, what are we talking about there? We're talking about power. Power such as only God can wield. We've considered the malignancy over which he conquered. If we time and we don't, we could delve into the manner in which he conquered. We could think as well of the multitude for whom he conquered. Won't be a blessed sight, won't it just? When from every corner of God's universe, every tribe, tongue, nation, people will stream into that celestial city, all washed in the blood of the Lamb, all knowing the value of Christ, the horn of salvation. But to close, we're directing ourselves to not only the suggestion of splendor here, the suggestion of strength, but the suggestion of supply that comes from the thought of this horn of salvation. Remember in Old Testament times where the Lord instructed Samuel to go and anoint David as the future king of Israel, and he said to him in 1 Samuel 16 and 1, Fill thine horn with oil and go. find it very interesting that, yes, Samuel took the horn of oil, verse 13 of the same chapter. He anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. But what I find interesting as well here is Samuel not only anointed David as king over Israel, he anointed the previous king, Saul, with a vial of oil. Oh, David with a horn of oil. Saul with a vial of oil. Now, a vial is much smaller than a horn. A small quantity. You can check it out. In 1 Samuel 10, in verse 1, David, he, he is anointed with a whole abundance of oil, a horn full of this oil. And the horn, in David's instance, it's speaking of a symbol of plenty here. And no wonder, because it's connected to the work of the Holy Spirit. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. A wonderful picture of what happens in the spiritual experience of the children of God. Christ is that horn of salvation to us, and he brings plentiful provision. And that's conveyed to us that plentiful provision through the operation of the Holy Spirit. A man was crossing a moor, and he came upon a cottage on that moor, and he's about to leave, having paid a little visit there, and he said to the person living there, aren't you afraid to live in this lonely place? Oh, no. For faith closes the door at night, and mercy opens it in the morning. Is not a glorious way to live, where faith is closing our door at night and mercy opens it again in the morning, and no doubt all the other graces that are brought to us through the cross. So many blessings, Colossians 2, verse 9 and 10, John 1 and 16, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him. So we are getting from that horn of salvation, that fullness, that supply, that plenteousness, for his fullness of that fullness have all we received, and grace upon grace, or Ephesians 1 and 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Paul writes again in Philippians 4 and 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's nearly embarrassing to note all of this because there is such infinite riches here. All I need, all you need to live a fulfilled, satisfied life for Jesus Christ. In the light of this, what should we do? We need to appropriate this salvation, not just listen to it, hear about it. No, with both hands, take hold of it. Say, I I need that. Save me, Lord, I perish and save me with this kind of salvation. Make the horn of salvation your own. Just as an Old Testament lawbreaker, he would have run to the horns of the altar and clung to the horns of the altar for safety. So Jesus Christ is the altar for the sinner. You must flee to him. Claim him as your Savior. Your whole eternity depends on this. Appropriate his salvation. Abase or humble yourself before him. Say, Lord, I have been trying, 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 hoping, hoping, hoping in my efforts all this time that by my own endeavors I'll prize open the lock on the gate and get myself into heaven, but I see I can't do it. And Christ on Calvary has done everything for me that needs to be done. Break off all trust in yourself and put total trust in Him. Then you can admire it. And that's what Zechariah is doing here. He's erupted into a song. He's praising the Lamb for what He is going to come and accomplish when He comes and the very thought of Jesus coming. We read, no surprise, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And if, if he praised God back then, and he did, how much more should we return thanks to our Lord, now that this horn of salvation has been revealed, identified, has died for our salvation, has accomplished it for us. Titus Flaminius was a Roman politician, and he freed the Grecians from the heavy laws that they'd been afflicted by for so long. And the herald comes out to his instigation and announces articles of peace, and the Greeks are pressing in him that he's in so much danger he feels, I'm going to be suffocated by the crowd here and lose my life. But he read the declaration the second time, and they understood fully what it was about, and they shouted for joy, and they shouted, a Savior, a Savior, and all night. The Grecians surrounded the tent of Titus, and with songs of praise and instruments of music, they extolled him as their great deliverer. There's a bigger and a better than Titus. One of those honorable Puritan preachers said, Ye that have escaped the wrath of God. Think of what that means. 
ye that have escaped the wrath of God by the humiliation of his Son, extol your great Redeemer and forever celebrate his praises. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 